morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. Such a blessing to meet with you and to share God's word and really excited about what God uh, has for us all today and so relevant, so necessary for us to walk in his wisdom and to be mindful of him with everything that's going on in life. So we'll be in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 32, picking up in the middle of a discussion Jesus was having with his followers and with anyone who would listen. I wasn't a Boy Scout, but I'm familiar with the motto, be prepared. And a person that's going into the bush needs to think about where they're going, how long they plan to be there, what they're going to be eating or shelter, means of navigation, ways of emergency contact, and wearing the right shoes, and having a change of clothes if you get wet, and um, having a, a first aid kit in case of injury. So just preparation for what you're going to face, knowing what kind of animals could be there, and what to prepare for. And it's, we could say, uh, preparation's a key in performing well for exams, knowing what is included in the exam, the format, whether it's a paper or multiple choice, and what the professor or teacher's looking for. In sports, preparation is key to winning, knowing how, having a plan of how you're going to attack or defend, and knowing the, the tendencies of your opponents, the strategies they're going to employ in counteracting those. A runner doesn't just start by running a marathon. Uh, a man or a woman or a young person would prepare their body by training over months, eating the, the right foods and wearing the proper apparel before that big, grueling race. And recently, we've been gearing up. We hear about uh, outbreak in Victoria and pre preparation for lockdown, so people are going out and buying food and necessities. And we understand the practical application of preparation that we need to prepare for uh, disasters or pandemics, for sports, for education. And Jesus taught that people needed to be spiritually prepared, and that's something most people don't think about. We have access to shops and electricity and food and water, and, and so when, when those things are cut off from us, we're ill-prepared quite often. We're ill-prepared to face um, having those needs because we're so used to being able to go to the shops to buy food or water. We don't have a stockpile for those things. And a lot of people don't give any thought to their spiritual well-being, their spiritual health, their spiritual fruit uh, future because they're so caught up in the everyday life on earth. And the Bible teaches us, Jesus affirmed this many times, that our life on earth is going to end. And it's those who are prepared by being rich toward God through faith in Him who will live forever. And the stakes for this is high because we're talking about eternity. Eternity with God or separated from God in eternal torment. And Jesus said, all the money in the world, it has no value to save your soul. All the food, all the clothing, all the things that people seek after, they're not able to supply the life that's given us through the gospel in Jesus. So Jesus said, don't have an anxious mind about the future. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and in him all your needs will be met. And so we pick up at this point, but before we begin... Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that you guide us into all truth, that you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us understand and apply personally your word to our lives. And I pray, Lord, you would visit us with your power, with your spirit, that we might hear 
we might understand and walk in the way that you have for us. Thank you that you've made your will known to us, that you have blessed us beyond measure, and that you are good, gracious, forgiving, and have supplied the way of salvation through Jesus. Lord, without you, we can do nothing. We are hopeless, lost, dead in sins, but you have shined your light into the world and given us life where there was only death and despair. So we praise you and we thank you. We ask today would be most fruitful as we read your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Be in Luke, starting in chapter 12, verse 32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide for yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no, no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus speaks with a lot of affection towards his little flock, and small flocks are not forgotten by good shepherds. We can have confidence in that. The rulers of old would say, ask and it shall be given to you up to half of my kingdom, but it's God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom and where we will rule as kings and priests with him, the book of Revelation says. Kings can afford to be generous because they have a lot to give and they have the means to gain more. As heirs of the kingdom of God, we are wealthy beyond money, beyond possessions, beyond this world and the things that we could acquire or the fame that people can have. Um, being rich in faith towards God, that is key through being generous with the things and the time he's given us. Being rich in good works, those are things we talked about last week, that we store up eternal reward in heaven that's awaiting us. It can't be stolen, lost, or spent. It's like um, we say money in the bank, but even money in the bank is a bit uncertain. We know that in Christ, though, we are secure and our future is safe in him. Jesus had just told a story about a rich man who had a bumper crop, couldn't fit it in his barns, and so he said, what should I do? Uh, Tear down my barns, build bigger, and soul, take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. You're, you're set for life, was the idea. And God said to that man, fool, tonight your soul will be required of you, and whose things will these be that you thought would help you? Because life is more than food. There's people worth millions that ended up in bankruptcy with legal fees and overspending and theft, and others died before their time because of a life of excess made available to them because of money. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The things that you treasure... Your affections will be tied up in them. Your thoughts, your desires will be for them. And it begs the question, are the things you treasure most on earth or in heaven? How do you know what you treasure? I think about people who have spent vast amounts of money to build themselves shelters in case of a cataclysm or a catastrophe. They want to live off-grid with water and ventilation, and they have you know, luxurious bunkers with uh, water and food. And, but there's a weak point in that plan. The weak point is, no matter how good your bunker is, no matter how, how many stores you have, you need to get from where you are to inside that bunker before the catastrophe happens, right? 
If you had a bunker outfitted to survive a nuclear blast, I imagine when the siren sounded, you would make a beeline straight for that bunker. Not because you love concrete or tinned food, but because you value your life, right? You would do it to save your life. Just like a mouse runs toward its hole when that broom is coming down. It's going to scamper away and hide. So when the trouble comes, you're going to run to that thing, that refuge that you trust in. Because in that case, you value your life. So you would go to that shelter. Now, if God in heaven is our greatest treasure, we'll make necessary preparations to live with him forever. If Jesus truly is our peace, if he is our life and our wisdom, we will invest our time and energy and resources and affections and desires in him and in his kingdom. Jesus continued in verse 35. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants." Knowing their treasure was in heaven, Jesus' disciples were called to be ready to be visited by God, like servants who wait for their master who was away at a wedding feast. Now, in the East, the wedding feast, could it would last over many days, over a week sometimes, and because they were traveling great distances, it was not known exactly when the master would return home. As the days passed, the servants left in charge of the household, they would keep... Uh, uh, feeding the flocks and guarding and preparing for the masters to re- master to return. They would have the towel on their waist to be ready to wash his feet when he came home. And the lamps would be burning. It wouldn't be a cold, uh, uninviting house. There would be a fire on the hearth. There would be food ready to feed him. He'd be ready to be, they would want to wash his feet uh, give him some oil, anoint his head with oil, refresh him after a long journey. And how pleased would that master be if he came home in the second watch, which is uh, 9 p.m. to 12, or the third watch, 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., and he finds the servants up and ready to welcome him. He knocks and the door is immediately opened, and they are ready to receive him. And how blessed would he be to know his servants were trustworthy? He didn't have to watch them to make sure they were watching for him. And so he would serve them. It's like they had been on the clock for all this time. And he's like, you would really feel good if you were uh, a householder and you came home and things had been well looked after. Verse 39, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus now switches up the parable. This master of the house, it's a different word than the master who's returning home. This would be like, uh, like Joseph, who was a slave, but he was the master of Potiphar's house. So he was in charge of the house, so still focusing on the servants who are waiting and watching. This master of the house, or this overseer, would take preventative measures if they knew that theft was coming at a certain hour, if there were thieves plotting to uh, storm the place. Uh, 
Even a lazy or a careless servant would be watching at a set hour to prevent theft. A selfish servant would drive off thieves because that could impact his job security. It could impact his master's ability to keep him on as a servant. God's servant, we ought to follow the example of the watchful, ready servant who's happy to receive his master, the one who is not self-serving in his service, but looks for the master joyfully, ready to greet them. And Jesus says, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. And it's important we keep this in the forefront of our minds, that Jesus, he... he always spoke about the eminency of his coming, to be ready for him at any time. And with our doctrine of, of eschatology, and we can make the mistake of plugging the words that Jesus says into our formula or into our framework and lose the power and the immediacy of what he's saying. Because we say, oh, he's speaking about judgment, and so this is, has to be the second coming, and the rapture hasn't happened yet, so that must happen first. And, and we, we really explain away the point Jesus is making here. He's saying, this rich man, in this, previously in the same talk, this rich man, he felt at ease. He said, soul, take your ease. But his, that night his soul was required of him. So you need to be watchful and ready, because... The, the Son of Man, God is coming in an hour you're not expecting. You will meet your maker at a time you're not prepared for. You don't know how long you have on this earth. You don't know how much longer you have until your soul is required of you and you stand before God in judgment. And you have, a, you have to give an account for a lifetime. And that's pretty heavy, thinking about this. Jesus would go to the cross and he would suddenly appear to his disciples and they weren't expecting him, right? He's in a locked, they're in a locked room and there he is in the midst, peace be unto you. He's not trying to get them in trouble. He's blessing them. He's encouraging them. There's that kind of meeting. So no matter where you place the rapture of the church or the second coming of Christ with the saints to judge the world, we have to be watchful and ready to meet God at any time to be judged at the unexpected hour. Jesus and his disciples, before his crucifixion, they pointed out to him all these great stones. They said, look at the manner of stones. Look at how big these stones are. And Jesus says, the day is coming when not one of these stones is going to be on top of one another. They're all going to be thrown down. And the things that appear so solid, the things we rely upon, we go, nothing's going to move that out of my life. Well, things can change really quick with an unexpected illness or an accident when you're suddenly made redundant. You didn't expect that. There's all sorts of unexpected. No one expected to be in a pandemic uh, in 2020. No one, ex no one ex we know that we are mortal, but no one expects to die. We don't know when that will happen. But God calls us to be ready, to be watchful, to have our lights burning, not sleeping, not hiding in darkness, not trying, you know, hiding in the cold house, hoping that, that the master doesn't realize we've been lazy or negligent. Of course he knows. It may be why he comes at that time, because he knows you're not ready. Luke 12, 41. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, 
that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Peter asked if this parable was spoken specifically to disciples of Jesus, to followers, or to all the people who heard, because there was a, a mixed group, uh, predominantly Jewish folks Jesus was speaking to. We know the Pharisees were there. They were listening in. Jesus' disciples were there. There were passers-by who may have heard this and were listening to him speak. Peter addressed Jesus as Lord, which is kurios in the Greek, and I love how the Lord, the kurios, answered, and he answers by not directly answering the question, the implications of what Jesus said, he was speaking to the Jews, but the implications are for Jew, for Gentile, for believer and unbeliever, for the church that had not yet been born. Because Jesus spoke to Jews, the primary context is concerning the Jewish nation and the judgment of God that was coming. Because God had given these Pharisees and religious rulers that, that job of oversight to feed the children of God, to teach them his words, but they had poor stewardship. They had devised this corrupt um, method of religion where men's traditions were taught above the word of God. Jesus said the one that the Lord will make steward or ruler over his household is the one who is faithful and wise, the one the Lord finds watchful and ready for his return. And we know that no one is put in the position of a steward unless you've been proved to some extent. You think about Joseph in Potiphar's house. He wasn't immediately made the ruler of the house, but because God was with him and the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, he was given uh, everything was committed into his hands, and Potiphar didn't even ask about it. This principle is seen in the workplace, in families, in government, and also relates to the church. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. He said, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. A faithful steward is on task He's engaged in his master's work. He's personally invested in fulfilling the responsibility given to him. A steward has oversight of someone else's things, and those who have been born again through Jesus and faith in him, uh, the scriptures say that even our body is not our own. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Being a faithful steward of our bodies is more than just physical health, but to keep ourselves from sin and to use our bodies and our mouths to glorify God, to love one another, to bring Glory to him. And Jesus warned against the servant who takes advantage of the others while the master is away. And 
This is a fool who begins to live as if his master will never come back. He'll never be held accountable for the things he's done or said. He begins to uh, abuse. There's domestic violence among the, the other servants, and he's becoming slothful and drunk. And the Lord of the house is fully aware of what's going on while he's away. It's kind of like parents who want to keep an eye on their kids or on the, the babysitter with those nanny cams just to make sure that everything's fine in the house. It's like the master knows. He's not ignorant of what's going on in his household. Of course, God, he knows everything. And he will come at a time when the steward is drunk, when the steward is uh, doing the wrong thing. He'll show up at the door and... What does it say? It says he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that should get our attention. Uh, and the Pharisees were of this kind who were listening in. They taught the doctrines of men, the commandments of men as the teachings of God. They used the law of Moses to exonerate themselves and to condemn others. And when they least expected it, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to them. And he offered them the way of salvation through faith in him. And their schemes to destroy him, they would be exposed and they ultimately would be judged. It's like in 40 years' time, those stones would be thrown down, burned with fire, and the nation would be scattered. Luke 12, 47. And that servant who knew his master's will and, did not, will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much more will, excuse me, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Under Jewish and Roman law, it allowed for masters to punish their servants or slaves. And a common form of punishment was a lash or a rod. And the severity of the punishment, it aligned with the severity of the crime. The servant who willfully disobeyed his master's will would be punished more har harshly than someone who was ignorant, didn't know that you were supposed to do this or not do that, and would be punished less severely. Being cut in two... That suggests some sort of rebellion from which there's no recovery. Right? It's very permanent. It's very decisive. Uh, lashes, though, it aims to teach a lesson because that servant will continue being in the house. It's like, I want to teach my servant to be a better servant. And so we shouldn't despise the chastening of the Lord, just like parents who discipline and train their children. God, he's not through with us when we make mistakes. He corrects us so that he can reform us and make him more like himself. And Jesus lays down this principle. He says, for everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required. So the more responsibility we have, the more God will require or ask us. We'll have to account for more. Having received God's word, all of us, we have a lot to answer for. Um, and we'll answer more for what we know than what we don't know. I remember an, a brother, he used to say to me, um, like, well, I, I only know the Lord and him crucified because he was concerned that the more he knew, the more he'd have to answer for. So if he just pretty much kept on the surface level, he was a bit safer. Uh, it, it was, yeah, 
Adam Clark, he wrote this point on that subject. He said, Many have thought that their ignorance of divine things would be a sufficient excuse for their crimes and that they may have but a few stripes. They voluntarily continued in ignorance, but such persons should know that God will judge them for the knowledge they might have received but refused to acquire. And I was like, wow, that, that's very insightful. That God, he's given us his wisdom, he's given us his word, and if we're willfully ignorant of it, uh, we, we ought to recognize that, repent of it, and to seek the Lord. Each of us has a lifetime to answer for. And instead of shrinking from knowledge or res- from responsibility, let's trust God to walk faithfully and obediently in what we're convinced to be true. So there's a lot that we don't know, but the things that you do know that are right, do those things, and let's repent of what we know to be sin and forsake it. Paul said this in Romans 14, 10 through 13. He said, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. Each of us will give account of himself to God, not of, for that other person. Like Peter's like, what about him? Jesus says, what's that to you? You follow me. You do my will. You feed my sheep. And we should not, it should be love then, love of God and love of others. We're not going to put a stumbling block in their way. We're not going to fall in front of them and trip them over. We want to walk uprightly and to do the things that please the Lord. The call is for each one of us to prepare ourselves to immediately open to Jesus and do according to his will. That's the, the impact statements that Jesus is making here. Continuing in Luke 12, verse 49. I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus was excited about fulfilling his earthly ministry, bringing it to a conclusion on Calvary. And through his death, through his resurrection, he knew the salvation it would usher in for sinners so that those who are lost could be found, those who are damned to destruction could be saved and delivered. And he wished the Holy Spirit could be poured out on all flesh, that the religious hypocrites, they could be judged for their sins and and, uh, their wickedness, that his kingdom could be established, but to everything there was a season. He had to be patient in following the Father's will and accomplishing it God's way. Jesus was gripped. He was held prisoner by the Father's will. And this glorious unfolding plan that had been designed by God from the foundations of the world. I think about a person who has a passion to uh, find a cure for cancer. And they do some, they, they make some amazing discoveries. After painstaking research and testing, they have revo- they found something that will revolutionize cancer treatment in every case. 
No one, and it's like that realization, like no one will ever have to die of cancer again. And the cure is free. Anybody can have this cure no matter where they are. They can be uh, helped. And, and can you imagine if you were that researcher and you're waiting to make this public announcement at a press conference and you're, you're just wanting to begin the treatments and you're wanting to see people who are sick and in hospice care now healthy and smiling and happy and you're like, I can't wait. But first things first, we have to make sure that everything's approved and done properly. Jesus, he was going to accomplish far more than just a cure for an illness that just prolongs life, which ends in eventual death. He was going to bring eternal salvation to all souls, to all people who trust in him at his cost. He supplies the cure uh, through his own blood, and those who trust in him can be born again and live forever, forgiven of sin, delivered from death, and have this glorious entrance into eternal life with him. But not everyone would be agreeable to this free gift of salvation purchased with the blood of Jesus. The Jews, they debated his qualifications. Like, who is this guy from Nazareth? Some people thought he was a deceiver. Others that he was demon-possessed. People said he was a glutton and a wine-bibber and that he ate with sinners. Jesus is the prince of peace, but people were divided over him. Households were split where some had loyalty towards Christ and others they had doubts. And that's the thing. Jesus des desires and demands absolute allegiance to him, even over your family, that you would trust in Jesus, you would follow Jesus. He is your king. He is your sovereign. Jesus knew some would receive him, but many would reject him. I'm amazed at Jesus' birth. They didn't send out letters or little announcements little email messages with a cute picture. Shepherds were in the fields, and it was angels that proclaimed his birth. In Luke 2, 13 and 14, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The world is at war with God because of sin. Enmity against God. But Peace has come in Jesus Christ, not peace like the world gives. So Jesus says, don't think I came to, be, to bring peace. I am the prince of peace, but the world being at war with me will be divided. Not everyone will receive me. Not everyone will, uh, there will be many who remain hostile towards Christ and his followers. And the gospel, it separates people from one another, even as the good shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He can tell the difference. Uh, probably most people can. But uh, yeah, he knows who are his and those who are born again. Luke twelve fifty four. Then he also said to the multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? People had learned in Jesus' time the ability to predict weather patterns in their area, and they planned accordingly. They prepared for the day. It's like if there was that cloud rising in the west, it meant showers, so they would carry an umbrella with them to work. They knew it was going to rain. If the south wind is blowing, it's going to be hot weather. No need to bring the heavy jacket today. Uh, we're, we're going to plan for the weather. And through experience, by learning 
about their area, they could predict uh, how they should live. And Jesus says, hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. How is it you do not discern this time? It's like, since when have people born blind been able to see by someone speaking to them? Have they ever seen anyone else cleanse lepers or heal lame folks, uh, have a paralyzed person rise from their bed and walk, uh, raising the dead? Was that something that happened every day? Of course not. This should have been a huge signal to them that the Messiah, the Son of God, had come. They knew that a sunny day uh, meant no need for a jacket. How could they not recognize the Son of God? The people to whom God had given His Word with the law and the Psalms and the prophets who spoke of Jesus, who spoke of the coming Messiah, how is it they couldn't see Him? How, how could they not recognize Him and prepare for His arrival? It's like the light of the world shone in their cities. Angels announced his birth. The people said, no one has spoken like this man before. No one had fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. No one had walked on the water. No one had calmed the storm by speaking. Of all people, they should have recognized Christ. And we ought to recognize him too. We ought to be ready for him. And let's not relegate the opening of this door. You think of the master returning and knocking on the door and saying, hey, are you guys home or what's going on? Let's not relegate this to Jesus only talking to the Jews because remember in Revelation chapter 3, we read of Jesus standing outside the door of the church of Laodicea and knocking. The king, the master, he's standing outside the church and he's knocking. And he's knocking on the doors of all their hearts. This isn't a knock of salvation that he would be um, received as Savior, but to be admitted into the lives of his redeemed, a church that he called part of his body. Somehow, Jesus is outside. And so we, we should not be amazed that the Jews didn't recognize Jesus, that they didn't open up immediately to Christ when his own church was not opening up to him. When he stood outside, he's outside, he's not central to the lives of the people in church anymore. He's outside, he's knocking on the door and asking to be let in, to be admitted. These are people that believe the right things but have increasingly become self-centered and self-confident. And if you turn in your Bibles to Revelation 3, starting in verse 19, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, this is a knock on the hearts of people who identified themselves as Christians, people who Jesus identifies as Christians. They were a, a fellowship that had become lukewarm. They were neither cold nor hot. Jesus stands outside. He knocks on the door. He calls out to them to open unto him. Now, we don't know if this rebuke made them zealous and repent. Um, 
because they assumed that Jesus was central to their life because they believed the right things. Now, this scene, it may well describe the hearts of people who are followers of Jesus. It may be an offensive suggestion to you that Jesus stands at the door of your church, of your heart right now, and he knocks. If we're going to hear Jesus' voice, we need to stop what we're doing and admit him in. Jesus will come in and commune with us and we with him. It's like, have you ever had that moment where there's a knock on the door and you're not prepared for that? Or you don't even know that it happened? Like, oh, I was at the door and knock. Oh, I didn't hear you. I was engaged in something else. Um, or there's someone at the door and we don't want them to know what's going on. And so we're scrambling to hide something or to, to throw something out or, you know, hey, hide in the closet type thing. <laughs> don't want my parents to know you're here. But... Jesus, he stands there and he, he bids us to open immediately. And if there's something that's hindering us from opening, like, oh, let me just finish what I'm doing. We're speaking to the king. He's knocking. He doesn't have to knock. He could just bulldoze the house if he wanted to. But he knocks and he waits and he calls. He's like, I want to come in and dine with you. I'm not coming in to destroy you. I want to bless you. I want to spend time with you and you with me. Luke 12, 57. Yes, and why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. Jesus uses another example to show how people often operate in their, with their best interests in mind. It's like a person being taken to court. Who knows that when the evidence is presented, they are guilty. So on the way, he's like, all right, you reneged on that business deal. You borrowed that tool and you wouldn't return it. I got to take you to court. There are these repairs you didn't make. And you know, if the judge hears it, you're in trouble. So it's much better to settle outside of court, right? So no one wants to face public humiliation, no one wants the expense or to be exposed as a fraud, to be imprisoned, to be cut off from family, to be denied your freedom, to be made a slave. These are things that they don't want. People do not want this. So you would make every effort to settle and just say, hey, what can I do to make this right? What can I help you? Let's not go to the courts or the judge. Uh, I've done wrong. Let's, let's patch this up. The hypocrisy. Jesus said, you're seeking to act on your own, for your own benefit in family squabbles, domestic issues, or business deals. How much, how much more motivated should you be to deal with your spiritual condition and to make amends with God before judgment day, before you are brought in before the heavenly throne and you are made to answer for a lifetime filled with sin? Why not deal with that now? You would deal with it. I mean, you wear... You bring an umbrella when it's a rainy day. You prepare for that. You, you would try to act in your own interests with this business deal or dispute. Why don't you apply that to a spiritual thing? In dealing with your sin now, in dealing with your distance between you and God, deal with that now. Open up to him. Jesus said previously in this chapter, don't fear men that can kill the body and that's all they can do to you. Fear God who, after he has killed, has the power to throw your soul into hell. 
Jesus said, I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. And creditors are not interested in taking less than what they're owed. They will take the smallest coin. They will demand that the fullness, full amount be paid of that loan. And God is no less demanding than a creditor because he's righteous and he's holy and just. The soul that sins will surely die for those who do not reconcile with God today. They justly face eternity in hell. And this message is really about preparing our hearts to meet with Jesus. Perhaps you didn't expect him as a Christian for him to be standing at the door right now and knocking. Jesus came to demonstrate his love for sinners. Even sinners he calls saints through the gospel, through faith in him. And the Father, he sent Jesus to save us. Not because we're worthy of his presence, but because of grace. Because he loves you and wants to spend time with you and with me. Of all the hearts Jesus could knock on today, he's knocking on your heart. He's chosen you to see if you are ready to immediately open to him or if there's other things that have your attention and your interest and your affection. Paul's words, they're relevant for all in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. He says, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you're waiting to be reconciled to God at the judgment seat, it's, it would be too late. And if you can hear this message right now, you can be that faithful and wise steward by the grace of God that immediately opens and says, I'm going to drop what I'm doing, Jesus, because I value you the most and I want to spend time with you. To rise and to joyfully welcome the King of Kings into your heart, into the central part of your life again. A person who prepares a shelter is going to run to it in time of trouble, and God is a refuge for us. We run to him, not because we value our lives, but because he is worthy. And we can choose if we're going to be that wicked servant who's, who's drunk and, and a sluggard, uh, who's cut in two without hope, or one blessed by God and given an honorable position in his kingdom. So today, today is the day to open your heart to Jesus and then we'll be prepared to share a glorious future with him forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus. Thank you for your word. And you know how to speak to us, Lord. You know how to put things in a way that, that arrests us. And I pray, Lord, we would receive you into the, the intimate parts of our lives, that you would be the center, that you would be our refuge, that we would run to you, not just in time of need, but because you love us and you have given everything to us. Father, I thank you for this, um, this rousing reminder for us to seek you, to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness, to receive Jesus, to have him be central, not just for salvation, but for every day, because we need you. You are our life. You are our peace. So I pray, Lord, you would continue to minister to our hearts, that you would quicken us according to your gospel and cause us to walk in your will and to do the things that please you, to keep our, the temple of our bodies with honor, that you might be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.
God bless. Have a great day.